for the past, present, and future of all animals. This is the Zookeeper's Voice with your host, Danny Jirasi. Hello, and welcome to the Zookeeper's Voice. I'm your host, Danny. Today on the show, we have Hazel McBride, a killer whale trainer and author of the book, I Still Believe, which is available on Amazon. Through her book, I Still Believe, Hazel McBride helps us to better understand killer whales in the care of man, the relationships they have with their trainers, and how the truth is not as black and white as it seems. Let's take a listen to our chat with Hazel McBride as we learn about her book, I Still Believe, and get a peek into her journey from a small village in Scotland to the killer whale trainer she is today. Today on the show, we have Hazel McBride, killer whale trainer and author of I Still Believe. Thanks for coming on the show today, Hazel. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Like, this is the first podcast I've ever done. Like, I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> well, we're excited to have you on. Um, I loved your book, and I'm so excited to have you on here to talk about it. So why don't you... Uh, thank you so much. Awesome. So why don't you tell our listeners actually where you are calling us from? Uh, right now, I'm actually calling you from the south of France uh, in Antibes, which is just outside of Nice. Um, but I am not French for anyone who thinks I'm French. I'm actually Scottish. <laughs> awesome. And you are from a, t- a small village in Scotland. Is that correct? Yeah, a very small village. Um, just outside of the main city of Glasgow. I live a very small countryside farm village. Uh, yeah, where I grew up for almost the entirety of my life until uh, I decided to pursue this crazy career and see where that would take me, which ended up taking me uh, quite far around the globe. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely did. Now, tell us a little bit about your childhood and what brought you to wanting to be a killer whale trainer? Well, I suppose my story is kind of, it's a little bit storybook. It's pretty classic. I mean, if you talk to a lot of other trainers, we've all come from very different backgrounds. We've all done, we've all gotten into it in very different ways. However, for me, it really was, um, it was from my mom. She instilled a love of animals in me from a very early age. Um, I grew up watching shows like Big Cat Week on TV and all the David Attenborough documentaries. So uh, I fell in love with wildlife from a very young age. And um, I was lucky enough when I was eight years old that my mom took us on a very expensive uh, transatlantic flight over to Orlando and took me to SeaWorld. And that was when I was first really exposed to to killer whales and dolphins and animals like that that we don't have uh, in Scotland in zoological facilities. So I had the opportunity to see them so up close and it was just so breathtaking and awe-inspiring that I don't think that ever truly left me until I, I got a little bit older when I decided that yeah, I was going to make that my reality, that I wanted to make that my career. Definitely. So from a very young age, you knew this was exactly what you wanted to do. Definitely. I mean, it was something, well, when I was eight, it was kind of like, oh, it's a dream. I I just love dolphins and killer whales. However, luckily enough, we went back when I was 14. And that's when I kind of was like, no, this is definitely what I want to do. I can't really explain the feeling it, it was it was almost like fate or, or like all of the pieces of my life kind of sliding together to to make exactly what my life was supposed to be and it just felt like it felt right 
is is what I'm trying to say. That the the idea of me as a 14 year old looking into my future, what felt right was becoming a killer whale trainer. And since that moment, I had I was overcome with immense passion for these animals, almost to the point of unhealthy obsession. <laughs> um, just driven focus towards that one goal in my life. Absolutely. And what was the path that led you to becoming a killer whale trainer? Like, um, I'm assuming it's not quite easy to get to where you are today. No, uh, especially being being Scottish. I mean, in, in Scotland, there are absolutely no cetaceans in zoological facilities. We have sea lions and seals, uh, so pinnipeds, but no cetaceans. So for ever since I decided at 14 years old that that's what I wanted to do, I realized I was going to have to leave my home and my family and my country to, to make that happen. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a difficult road, but it was just kind of realizing what what I was going to have to do to, to make it happen. So when, when people begin to want to be a trainer, what mm -hmm. kind of advice would you give them and the path that you took and what would you recommend to those who are, who also want to follow in your path? So when I finally decided that, yes, I wanted to make this happen, I, I realized that I was going to have to get experience. So I realized that experience was going to have to come from outside of the country where they actually had some dolphins. Right. Um, so that's when I traveled to, to Florida and I did my internship with dolphins there. And I actually ended up speaking with um, another ex-SeaWorld trainer um, who was telling me all loads of stories about him working with killer whales, et cetera, et cetera. And... I fangirled. I completely freaked out. I was like, oh my God, I love killer whales so much. They're amazing. <laughs> and he he gave it to me straight. He was like, get that out of your head right now. If you want to work with killer whales in the future, you need to get serious about it. You need to want to work with them because of the challenge of them, because they are difficult, because they test you. You need to want to work with them because of that, not because you're just in love with them and it's all unicorns and rainbows. So that was actually one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. That's when I kind of dropped the the dream part and made it a goal as when I decided, right, this this is serious. Like I need to go after this with everything that I have. So for any any people that are out there that are aspiring trainers, I always say to people, if I can do it, then anyone can do it. Like I came from a very small village in a place where we don't have any cetaceans in zoological facilities. And it took a lot of grit and a lot of determination and a lot of money. <laughs> but if you work hard enough, then you can 100% make it happen. And if you don't have the money or the, or the funds or the time to do three or four different internships, then networking is 100% your best tool. Get on LinkedIn, get on the Imata forums, get to your local zoo, your local aquarium and just talk to people. That I think all of that is such awesome advice because um, as some of our listeners may know, I worked at SeaWorld in San Antonio for almost 10 years. And from what I've heard, it's very difficult to get into the field that you have obviously been able to thrive in. So that's mm. amazing. And it's amazing that you can give this advice to any of our listeners who hope to follow in your footsteps. Well, I mean, if you're taking just um, Marineland and Laurel Park, the, the two main facilities in Europe with killer whales, there's only 25 positions available between the two. Wow. So if you take into consideration how many people want those jobs and how many people actually have them, 
um, it's something you really have to fight for if it's something that you want. And I'm sure it's a thousand percent worth it once you make it there. Oh my goodness. When I got the call to tell me that I was successful and I had landed the job at Laura Park, I burst into tears. My roommate um, was in her bedroom and she came running out because the the boss at Laura Park at the time had gotten the time difference wrong. So she called me at 5.30 in the morning, which of course I answered because I knew that I was waiting on on the phone call. And I woke my roommate up, but we had like a mini celebration before uh, work that morning. It was it was really sweet. Absolutely. 25 positions. That's <clears throat> that's <clears throat> not very many. No, Laura Park have 15 positions open. I mean, potentially more now because they just had the birth of um, the calf, uh, Morgan's calf. Um, and Marineland, we only have 10 trainers. So, yeah, not not an awful lot of, of chances to get to get your foot in the door. Now, when it comes to getting your foot in the door, one thing that I always hear about is the dreaded swim test. And you did talk about that in your book. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really um, enjoyed reading about was your background in swimming. Can you tell us a little bit about what a swim test is for our listeners who may not know what it takes to become a killer whale trainer? And also, did your swim background help at all with that? Okay, so I was a competitive swimmer for over 10 years. I swam on the Scottish team, uh, so I competed all over the country um, for years and years and years, training at 5.30 in the morning, training upwards of 20 hours a week, all that. Um, And of course that helped me. uh, With regards to swim tests, just being that comfortable in the water was obviously going going to be an advantage. However, when I, and I talk about this in the book, Um, When I first started researching swim tests, I let myself get completely freaked out. I was listening to people tell me horror stories about bursting their eardrums as they did the free dive to the bottom, about it being impossible to swim in a wetsuit, about how hard it was to hold your breath underwater. And it really got to me and I started to really doubt my abilities. I was like, oh my goodness, these these trainers that that pass swim tests must be superhuman. Um, but what I really like to, hopefully what has come through in the book and, um, what I like to tell people who ask me on social media is that it is definitely not impossible. Swim tests are not designed to be impossible. They're designed to test you on what you're going to need to do in your job. So if you're going for, for instance, let's say a show position at Dolphins, they're going to need to know that you can hold your breath across the length of the pool down to the bottom of the pool because you're going to need to do that in shows. They're going to need to know that you can haul yourself out over the glass, that you can dive from a high platform because that's what the job requires. Um, So yeah, my best, uh, if I was to give any advice for anyone that's training for a swim test is just get down to your local pool and just practice swimming underwater, holding your breath, uh, stay calm, stay relaxed, and and you'll get through it. Um, I mean, the best thing to do is just exactly that. Just stay calm. Don't let yourself get stressed out about it and, and practice as much as possible. Definitely. And I know that when I was reading, you were saying that you were just basically psyching yourself out, even though you had everything that you needed to pass that swim test inside of you already. Oh, yes. Because I think it comes from, it's something that you want so badly. And you know that in a swim test situation, um, you only get one chance. It's not like, you can go in and, and do the swim test a couple of times, go, oh, sorry, I, I wasn't able to hold my breath. I'll try again. You have to do it in that one time. That's the one time that you're given. 
in in most cases. I was I was very lucky that in Laura Park in Marineland, um, it works slightly differently where you get the job and then you have a certain amount of time to pass the swim test um, or you don't have a job anymore. Um, but for the majority of people, it's part of the interview process. Uh, am I right in saying that, that it was like that at SeaWorld? Yes, I believe that what they used to do was because um, I actually never worked with marine mammals directly but um when i would hear about the swim test it was always they were bringing in people for a swim test and then they got an interview so they actually had to pass the swim test first in order to even get an interview and i think that that makes it even more stressful because you're already worried about what you have to say in the interview and how you're going to come across to people but you have this massive hurdle to kind of get past before before you even get to that part and if you're keeping all of that stress in your body and you're and you're freaking yourself out, you're not going to be concentrating on your breathing. You're not going to be, and what you need to do is you need to take long, slow, deep breaths, stay relaxed, and just focus on what you need to do under the water. So when you let all of that stress get to you, that's when you're not going to pass a swim test. You have to stay relaxed. You have to stay in the moment. So when you're allowing other people around you to psych you out and stress you out, it's going to have a bad effect on how you're going to perform in the pool. Absolutely. And another thing that I took from your book that I actually had forgotten about, even though I knew that it was something that was important, was that a swim test doesn't just happen once. Isn't that correct? Yeah. If you're on killer whales, well, I can't really speak for for dolphin shows or facilities that I haven't worked at. But for where I have worked uh, on killer whale teams, it's a recurring nightmare maybe I want to say for some trainers (laughs) um yeah and it's usually once a month at Marineland here we do quarterly swim tests uh which means that we have to pass it we have to be checked off on it uh once every three months um however we're in the pool probably every couple of weeks in winter because it's quite cold almost every day in summer um which is good because it keeps our fitness levels up uh and in Laura Park you have to be officially checked off on it at least once a month Oh, wow. And that's so important just because of the the size and the strength and um, working directly and so closely with the whales, correct? Yeah, of course. I mean, you have to know that you have the right level of fitness to be able to keep up with the animals. I mean, these are, these are massive, uh, the biggest predator of the ocean that you're working with. You always have to have a a healthy level of respect for the animal that you're working with, regardless of if you have a great relationship with that animal. So you need to be prepared for any eventuality. Definitely. Now, let's talk a little bit about your experience with working with killer whales. So first, tell us how long you've been working with your dream animal. (laughs) Uh, I've actually only been working with killer whales for four years. Um, This was actually one of the reasons why I wasn't sure if it should be me to write this book because I'm not a veteran trainer that has been in the water for 30 plus years with killer whales. I didn't do water work. I wasn't there like when everything was kind of beginning. Um, But I decided to write this book because no one else was. And I kind of, I wanted to have something out there that, that was on our side because I felt like that was, that was something that was really lacking uh, in the world these days. So I wanted to, to kind of take that on, on behalf of, of all trainers, even though I'm not the most, uh, the most experienced, I definitely still have a lot to learn. I'm learning every single day. Um, wiki, the whale that I work with right now humbles me every single day. 
she never lets me think that I know everything. <laughs> uh, she is definitely uh, large and in charge. Um, but yeah, I worked at Laura Park for two years. I was hired on a two-year two-year contract, uh, worked to the end of that two-year contract, and then was hired at Marineland. Wonderful. Now, what does a day look like for you when you are working with killer whales as a marine mammal trainer? So every day is always different because the animals are so highly intelligent. We never want to be predictable. We never want to do the same thing every single day. So, of course, every day there will be a trainer that's doing the kitchen, which means they'll be preparing all of the diets for the animals all during the day. So we have a certain number of buckets and a certain amount of fish that we will feed to the animals every day. However, fish is boring. So even though we'll do training sessions, shows, husbandry sessions, relate sessions, and yes, we will use fish in all of those sessions, um, we also try to make a conscious effort to be variable with our reinforcement, which means using toys, using ice cubes, using gelatin, using relationship, using rub downs. <laughs> the list is basically endless. So when we come around at the pool in the morning, we really like to look at how the animals are and kind of get a feel for, for what they would like to do. Uh, for instance, if uh, Wiki, the, the dominant female at Marineland, has been sleeping uh, with her two babies, Sometimes she can be really, really tired in the morning, just like any mother. Uh, so sometimes we might have to kind of separate her for like 45 minutes to an hour. Maybe we'll do a nice relate session with her just so that she can get some some chill time by herself. So we always change up. So every day is different in the life of a killer whale trainer. Oh, definitely. I mean, we have the shows planned at certain times during the day. So for instance, right now we're, we're only doing two shows a day. So there will be one uh, uh, around lunchtime and then there will be one later on in the afternoon but even during shows we never ever make it the same so we have different structures for the show so each segment can be uh, moved around and changed we can do um, kind of like the quieter more relationship segment in a different place and and the more kind of fast-paced segment in a different place we can choose what animals we're going to put where so we can put some animals at the beginning, some animals at the end in the morning, and then we can switch that around in the afternoon. And again, that's all dependent on how the whales are. Like, for instance, I talk a lot about Wiki because she's the animal I work most with. Um, but she gets very jealous of other animals if they start the show. So if we leave her in the back and we don't start the show with her, she can get very, very annoyed with us because she hears the music, she can she can feel the atmosphere, and if she sees that we're letting the boys go out and start and not her, she can get very, very jealous. <laughs> she sounds like she has a really big personality. <laughs> oh, she does. I mean, I spoke about this a little bit in the book, um, but dominant female killer whales, even though I've only worked with a couple of them, are, are definitely strong characters, and they definitely put you in your place. It definitely sounds like it, but it sounds like working with killer whales, not only is it difficult, but it sounds like every day you get something out of it as well. Oh, it is so rewarding. It To be able to be this close to a killer whale is a privilege. It's an immense privilege. And it's a partnership. I mean, we are never telling these animals what to do. We are never ordering them around. Like we cannot force them to do anything they do not want to do. So everything is a partnership. We are completely equal. I mean, being able to be so close to Wiki, to look into her eyes, to be able to, to kiss her on her rostrum, it sounds so silly, but to be able to have that level 
of trust between us, not just me and her, but also her and me. That's what a lot of people don't realize is that, yes, we trust these animals with everything to get so close to them, but they also have to trust us. When when you're first a trainer coming around the pool, again, I'll take the example of Wiki, she won't let you touch her. If you're If she doesn't know you, she will not let you touch her. And, and that's because she doesn't trust you yet. So you have to spend a long time giving her basically everything that she wants, whether that's rub downs, toys, play times, in order to get her to go, okay, you're all right. I have fun with you. That's okay. And then we can start to build on that relationship together. So you definitely have to earn everything that you get with a killer whale. So it sounds like the whale that you're currently talking about is, would you say that she's the favorite whale that you've ever worked with? Oh, it's very difficult because when you're a killer whale trainer, you start working with one animal in particular because like I've, I explained in the book and I just said a little bit now, they're very, very particular about who they allow to be around them. So you have to spend a long time developing a relationship before you get to do anything, before you get to do training sessions, before you get to do husbandry sessions or even shows. You have to just work on basically getting the whale to like you. So when I first started at Laura Park, that whale was Skyla. And I can't talk about her too much or I will get upset because I miss her very much. Oh, I can't <laughs> um, imagine. She's a very, very special whale. So I think it's almost a rule that for any trainer, the first whale that you work with, they're your first love. I called the, the entire chapter, uh, and I still believe, first love after Skyla. So I'd have to say it's probably a tie between Skyla and Wiki. I also do work um, one other killer whale on the team at Greenland, a uh, little Kayo. Um, he's our little five-year-old. He's the youngest member of the pod. However, because their personalities are so exact and so complex, I feel like as a trainer, you're always going to be drawn to an individual. Maybe it's because your personalities match. Maybe it's because you can get a little bit more in sync. Um, but there's always going to be one or two whales that kind of come up to, to the top for you. And yeah, I suppose I'll have to say I love Skyla so much because she was my first whale, but because I'm with Wiki every single day, I'll probably see her too. Can I have two? <laughs> yeah, you can absolutely have two. I feel like I kind of asked you to choose between your favorite children, and I don't know if that was really a fair question. Yeah. <laughs> so um, a lot of our listeners are trying to learn about uh, killer whales, different animals, and one thing that I feel like you will have a very good answer for for us is what do you feel like those who don't work with animals don't understand about any kind of animal, specifically marine mammals, but any kind of animal who is currently in the care of man? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> um, I think when you work with animals like this, you if you don't work with, with animals, you miss out on learning so much about yourself. The, these whales have taught me so much about myself. They have taught me so much patience. They have taught me so much confidence. Like you see that happen a lot um, with trainers that, that come in and start, start learning how to work them and they grow so much in confidence in themselves. Um, but yeah, there's just, they just bring an aspect of, I don't know, this sounds so cheesy, but like almost a little bit of magic to your life that you don't get to have if you don't work around these animals, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And I actually, now that you say that, I started 
watching killer whale shows, even though I haven't worked with them since I was about two or three years old in SeaWorld San Antonio. And (laughs) I can absolutely say just even from never getting to work with them that going to a killer whale show, seeing them live and in person is, does bring magic. So I can't even imagine what that's like to actually be able to have relationships and work with them. Definitely. I mean, killer whales always seem, they never fail to bring out something in people. Dolphins, it works with dolphins too. Um, humans seem to be very connected to them. They seem to to feel something inside of that, whether it's their soul or whatever it is you believe in. They just connect with a part of you. Like when people see killer whales and when people see dolphins, it, it's just, it's on another level to seeing a dog or a cat, for example. And you see it when people come around the pool and, and it's in faces of children when they see these animals for the first time. It's sheer awe. They, they almost don't even know how to handle it. And, and that, for me, is one of the reasons why zoological facilities that house cetaceans are so incredibly important because if you can inspire young generations or even older generations with reactions like that, then they're going to be inspired to make changes in other aspects of their life. And people that come into to marine parks like SeaWorld, like Marineland, like Laura Park, they leave with a much greater appreciation for these animals. And and the majority of people that come into our parks, they don't know an awful lot about the environment or about these animals or anything until they're exposed to it. And these are often people that would never have the opportunity to be exposed to these animals in the wild. So that's something that that is incredibly special. And And it is just lovely just being able to bring people this close to animals like this and just and just watch them melt. <laughs> Definitely. Now, you did mention how important these facilities are. Um, mm-hmm. For our listeners, can you explain a little why these facilities are so important, not just to the uh, animals who live there, but also to uh, the future of the animals, um, both in the parks and their counterparts in their natural environment? Of course. I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware, but SeaWorld recently published over a decade of killer whale research in order to help. Um, I don't know if it's specifically the struggling southern resident wild killer whale population or, or just wild killer whales in general. Um, but yeah, the obvious reason why it's, uh, the captive population can help their uh, counterparts in the wild is through research. Um, being able to do so much research with, with these killer whales whether it's cognitive, whether it's physiological, we can gather so much data, so much um, empirical data that it can really, really make a difference. And in addition to that, the majority of uh, marine parks and zoological facilities have their own conservation funds where almost a part of uh, your ticket will go towards uh, funding conservation projects. So for me, it's about research, it's about conservation, and also about education. The amount of um, education projects that all of the facilities I've worked for do is incredible. The way they bring bring schools in, bring young children in, uh, make some of the, the the shows more educational, so changing to become a little bit more like a an educational presentation. So yeah, I think I would say probably research, conservation, education, inspiration, all the ins, <laughs> all the ins, and it all of those things you we need these facilities to be able to bring those to bring those things. So 
Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, not everyone has the money or the, or the funds to be able to travel to go and see these animals in the wild. And even if you do, it, it's so difficult. There's a very fine line on on, on if you're going to go whale watching, how, how many boats can be out in the water, how close you can get to the animals. It, and it, it's not often very well policed. Uh, once you're out there, a lot of these companies can, can basically do what they want. Um, and you're not always sure that they're going to abide by, by the laws. I mean, I know that in the, in the States they're very strict, but I went, once went whale watching in the Dominican Republic to go and see humpback whales. And we were far too close to the animals, um, to the point where me and a fellow trainer who were on the boat were very uncomfortable. So for me, having these whales and dolphins, cetaceans, any, any exotic animal in a zoological facility is a way to really bring people so close to these animals to inspire them to make a difference. And people that would never in their life have been able to have gotten that close to these animals otherwise. Yeah. And I, I grew up, you know, being inspired by getting to visit the facility I lived near. Now we may have some listeners who may have not had that opportunity or even have questions about, is it okay for animals to be in the care of man as opposed to out in the wild? Could, If you could say one thing or tell our listeners something who maybe are on the fence about having animals in the care of man, what would you like them to know? The one thing that I always say is that there are positives and negatives on both sides. There is no situation that is 100% perfect. Zoological settings, not 100% perfect. The wild, definitely not 100% perfect. But I truly believe that having animals in zoological settings is necessary. I completely agree. So Hazel, so you just came out with the book, I Still Believe. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you? What was the final thing that inspired you to sit down and write this book? Oh, I was angry. <laughs> I was angry in myself. I was angry on behalf of other trainers, just from the constant attacks on social media, even in person, the constant fight that was just draining the life out of me and out of my colleagues and out of other trainers that, that I know through through Facebook, etc. Um, that we're just, we were tired of just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And and having the same questions hurled at us and and basically the the backlash from blackfish we, we were still struggling with it and i remember one day i was in in the office at marineland and i was doing the records because and it, as anyone who's worked in one of these facilities will know you take records on everything that the animals do every single day so that's all sessions everything and i had almost like a light bulb moment where i just thought why is no one bro- wrote a book about this why is there nothing physical out there available to people in the world that they can just pick up and read and go, oh, okay, that's the truth. Ah, I get it now. So I quickly started jotting down like a whole page of of very quick notes and I took it straight down to the whale pool and I showed it to my supervisor and one of my best friends on the team and I just went, we should write a book. (laughs) Um, And like I said before, like I am definitely not the most experienced trainer, like almost the whole way through writing this book, I was thinking to myself, why am I writing this? Why, why me? Like, why should I do this? Why am I the right person? But again, like I said, no one else was. So 
for me, writing has always been something that I've loved doing. I typically write um, fantasy fantasy fiction. Um, so this was a bit of a challenge to go to, to nonfiction, especially on such a controversial subject. Um, and the first draft, you would not want to read the first draft. The first draft was basically just me angrily typing at my computer all of all of the thoughts that I had. Um, but luckily, uh, after talking to, to some professionals um, over the phone who gave me a little bit of advice on how to, to potentially restructure it to make it a little bit more of a, a palatable read, <laughs> shall we say. Um, so I got some good advice uh, and then I, I took that into consideration and, and it became the, the nice narrative story-like nonfiction book that it, that it became. So I loved reading the book. Um, I know I told oh, you I, I ordered. Yeah, I ordered the book. I loved reading it. And um, one thing that I'd like to know is what would you like people overall? Because we definitely wanted them to sit down and read this awesome book that you wrote. What would you like them to take away from it? The main message for me with this book is that I would love people who who are very pro animals and zoological facilities and people who are very against it. I would love for both of those people to be able to pick up this book and take something away from it. I wanted to write a book where where someone who had doubts or someone who had questions could pick it up and go, okay, now I understand. They don't necessarily still have to agree with everything, but just have a better understanding of what we do every day and what we stand for. And the message that I really try to get across in this book is that even for people who who, are, who don't agree with what we do, it's because they love the animals. We all we all love these animals. So I truly believe that the only way that we can help both animals in zoological facilities and animals in the wild is if we put aside all of the hate that we have for one another and we come together for the good and the benefit of animals everywhere. Like like the the tagline of my book is the truth is not as black and white as it seems. This entire situation is not black and white. The animals might be but the situation isn't. And people need to realize that. Like people are on both sides of this argument. People are saying, one, one side is saying that it, this argument is white. One person is saying this argument is black. It's not. It is shades of gray. And we need to kind of get through all of that together so that we can come at positively on the other side. That's wonderful. And I, I think that that's an amazing message. And I'm really excited for people to read the book. I enjoyed it. And I know that they're going to really enjoy it too. Oh, thank you. Now, um, it was definitely a very controversial topic. Um, so I was very nervous about putting it out in the world. And the book became incredibly personal as well. So to know that there's so many people out there that are going to know so much about me um, at the end of this is is quite nerve wracking. Um, but there's been a lot of positivity about it, which is lovely. Yeah. And like I said, I loved it. And I'm excited for others to read it. Now, for those who have uh, heard our interview, gotten to know you a little bit more, and they would like to pick up a copy of your book. Can you tell us a little bit about where we can find it? Definitely. Um, it is available in, on Amazon. Um, so if you just go on your your local domain for Amazon, whether that's amazon.com, .co.uk, if it's .fr, if you're in France, <laughs> um, you will be able to go on there and find a copy of I Still Believe. Just type it into your search bar. Wonderful. Now, as we're closing up, do you have any um, last message for us before we let you go today? 
<laughs> I would say never stop believing, whether that means believing in a future for killer whales in the care of man, or if that is believing that you can have your dream career working with marine mammals, anything is possible. And yes, I maybe stole that line from a SeaWorld killer whale show, but I am not ashamed. <laughs> it's it's still very true and very important for us to, <laughs> to believe and to, and to really take with us day to day. Now, um, lastly, is there anywhere where our listeners can follow along with your journey or follow you on social media, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, as a way to market the book, I got very uh, involved on my Instagram. So you can follow me over at, at Hazel Orca Trainer. Uh, also, I recently started a blog, um, which can be found at www.hazelmcbride.home.blog. But there's a direct link to that uh, from my Instagram page. Wonderful. And we'll make sure that we share that with our listeners. Thank you so much, Hazel, for coming on the Zookeeper's Voice today. It was wonderful to have you on. Oh, no, thank you guys so much for having me. It was great chatting to you guys. Thank you. Not only was Hazel McBride our first marine mammal trainer, our first international interview, and our first published author, but she was also awesome to talk to. Yeah, she was great. She had so much insight into her, the starting in Scotland and coming up through her entire career. That was pretty amazing to hear. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening, um, I did order the book and read it, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. You've seen me with my nose in that book just... You guys got me intrigued because now I want to read it. Now you want to read it. Yeah. Ooh. Well, luckily, I'm done with it, so you can read oh, it now. Nice. <laughs> now that you're done, I get sloppy seconds on your book. I Maybe have... I'll just buy a second copy to support Hazel. Hey, you know what? I don't think she'd mind that. <laughs> so I, I really loved hearing her perspective of what it's like to come up from, like you said, a small village in Scotland all the way to getting to live her dream. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, and... I think that hearing just from what she was saying, the difficulties in the swim test and what it's like to really work with killer whales. I mean, I got to work at SeaWorld for 10 years and I didn't get to really ever talk to anybody like that and really get an inside view. Yeah, the the swim test, like when she was describing it, it sounded really daunting, but and it sounded like she got into her own head. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like she was obviously way more qualified than she thought originally and, and probably crushed the swim test. And here she is today, you know, a killer whale trainer for four years now. Yeah. And every facility, from my understanding, does have a little bit of a different swim test. Uh -huh. But uh, I just remember hearing over the 10 years when swim tests would be coming up and you would have people who either they worked with animals or you knew them or they worked in our, an education department and they would be training for the swim test. And it was just such a big part of, uh, you know, they were so nervous. They were spending any time they could in the pool. And she's right. I, I feel like I can definitely see how psychologically that affected a lot of people because it's your dream job. Sure, yeah. There's tons of pressure. Yeah. And I loved hearing about her relationships with the whales. Yeah. No, I knew, I knew this interview would be kind of... Right up your alley. I'm surprised you didn't start crying to be honest with, <laughs> with, with how much I know you love SeaWorld and how much you love the killer whale shows. I thought this was really going to hit you right in the heart. It, it did. And I think that having the, I would say, privilege and, and not uh, on accident of living near SeaWorld and growing up sure. five, ten minutes from the parks. Fortunate. Yeah, I was very fortunate from a very young age getting to experience that and being 
uh, having a passion for animals. And I really think that's part of what not only led me to work with animals for most of my life, but also what we're doing right now. The zookeeper's voice is really comes from a place of passion. And I'm really excited to share Hazel's message because I think it's really important to hear all different perspectives about what it's like to work with animals and how important it is for those that are in the care of man, why it's so important that what they are doing, um, it's just the message can't get lost in the chaos. I think that one of the most important things I take from Hazel's interview and Hazel's book is just the importance of what these facilities are doing and that the animals are not just cared for, but everyone who works with them is just so passionate about what they do. There's some love there. Yeah, there's a lot of love, especially for somebody like Hazel who had to move away from home and, you know, change her entire life. that's not love, I don't know what is. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything, but you're giving me the eyes. I'm giving you the eyes (laughs) from Texas to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. That's love. But I absolutely loved hearing from her. And I'm so excited for our listeners to to read her book, to learn more about what is really happening in these facilities. The more you hear from the people on the inside, the better. And overall, absolutely. Overall, I think that the more that we educate ourselves and really understand all the things that Hazel talks about in the book and in our interview, that we will not have so much to fight about. Like she said, it's not black and white. There are shades of gray. Mm -hmm. And it seems like sometimes we're all arguing for the same thing. That's, And it's not even just the whole killer whale stuff. That's every aspect of life. It's politics. It's... Everything. Everybody thinks it's all black and white, but there's so much in the middle that Absolutely. we don't need to argue over. Absolutely. And I think that those of us who love these animals, we're so passionate about it. But like you said, we do forget that we're all fighting for the same purpose. The, the world needs to understand that there are things that we can agree on and we don't have to fight over everything. Right. We all want what's best for the animals, mm-hmm. whether or not they're in our care. Correct. So for those of you listening, uh, go ahead and check out Hazel McBride's book on Amazon.com. It's called I Still Believe. I highly recommend it. Um, I have yet to give it a review, but after we're done with this interview, I'm going to go give it the highest review that I can. And take it from me. I love sitting down and reading it, and I know you will too. Thanks for tuning in to The Zookeeper's Voice today. Please rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And be sure to stay up to date with all the happenings here at The Zookeeper's Voice on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and thezookeepersvoice.com. For the past, present, and future of all animals, this has been The Zookeeper's Voice. We'll see you next time.